This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Peter Davison, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the eye-opening task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yeah, I know. It was low-hanging fruit. I went there. Shut up. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally eye-opening four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. There's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. And finally, there's our special guest for this episode, the star of Page and Screen, Jim Sangster. Hello, Jim. I'm bringing something very wonderful and strange. Let's hope so. <laughs> and doing it very quickly, too. I just realized you were with us last time. So, yes, I, I didn't tell any of our listeners about that, so... Surprise! <laughs> yes. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't see why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive some sort of goodie, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You keep them in an abandoned church with a giant face behind one wall, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton, Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I did it in one breath. I don't know how I managed that. You can still kill Tony Witt. Just contribute to our Patreon, and it will be one more name than he could manage in a single breath. I, I, we've had one more name on this list, and I managed it, but... You have to train to expand one name at a time. That's true. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. 
We continue our discussion of the Peter Davison era with the novelization of The Awakening. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Awakening, adapted by Eric Pringle from a script that aired from 1984 to 12084, published by Target Books in June 1985. As of this recording in January 2024, this title is out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. When we talk about Pringles, we say that you can't have just one. I think it's safe to say that in this case, we only want the one. <laughs> but that's yes. not necessarily Eric Pringle's fault, for reasons that will become clear. It will likely come as no surprise that this story was originally envisioned as a four-parter, until both the production team and the writer realized there wasn't enough plot quite to justify the length, so it was cut back to a two-parter, even though there's not quite enough plot to justify a two-parter. What is surprising, though not really given John Nathan Turner's aversion to having novelizations that don't follow the televised story, is that this novelization does not include any of that cut material. Everything that's in the televised version is in this book, all 144 pages of it. <sighs> Eric Pringle, who died in 2017 was a successful television writer in the 1970s, contributing to shows like The Pretenders, not The Music Band, and he also happened to be a fan of the series. He'd actually proposed a story way back in 1975 for The Fourth Doctor, but it was not taken up. In 1981, he sent in two ideas, one of which was a Dalek story, which Eric Sayward understandably rejected, as he had other plans for them. <clears throat> yeah. But he was interested in the proposal for War Game, which was changed to The Awakening, possibly to reduce confusion with a certain American movie of a similar name. I haven't found anything to back that up. I just like the sound of it. So that's my headcanon. <laughs> uh, it's probably more likely they didn't want to confuse it with The War Games, which was Patrick Troughton's last story. That makes a lot more sense. The story was still extensively rewritten by Sayward, ostensibly to reduce the length of episode one, which had to still get special permission to overrun the time slot because it was 18 seconds too long, even after heavy editing. Hmm. That was still too much editing for Pringle, who found Sayward's rewriting to have made the script confusing and rushed, which is probably why the book takes its time telling the story. And what appears to be becoming a regular event for the show around this time, Pringle decided not to contribute to the series again after this experience. So Eric Sayward was driving away people in droves, basically. Mm. The early edit of that episode was recovered from John Nathan Turner's personal collection after his death, and it was included in the DVD release. One of the scenes chopped for time was a sequence in which Tegan comes across Chameleon, remember Chameleon, hooked into a TARDIS roundel, and she questions him, only to have him answer her in the voices of both the Doctor and Turlow. What are you doing? Feathering my education. Learning about the TARDIS. The doctor know you're tapping the computer? Of course. I won't do it any harm. You forget by the night. So the doctor says. Still give me the willies, especially when you use that voice. Can't you find another? Or would you prefer this? That's even worse. This means the chameleon will only have two appearances in the series. His first story and his last. Not this one. Speaking of companions that never were... 
Both the production team and the cast were very taken with Keith Jane's performance as Will Chandler, and John Nathan Turner seriously considered making him a companion, but decided against it on the grounds that the character would not have quote-unquote lasting appeal to fans and had no potential for development. An online writing group that I was once a part of did a sequel to the story and made very good use of Will, so that just goes to show how JNT's decisions could be hit or miss. <laughs> and speaking of characters that could have been potential companions but weren't even considered for them, Jim, you have a bit of trivia about the actors who played Jane. Well, it's uh, not so much trivia, really, but it's... Uh there's always been this kind of underground fan feeling that Jane and Will were probably better companions than the ones that we had. So, <laughs> you know, Big Finish, who they're not afraid to mine a crack in a scene just to get an entire series with Tolo and the Doctor on his own. Right. But I don't know whether it's the actors weren't willing or whatever. More on that later. But imagine if Tegan and Tolo had just stayed where they were and the Doctor decided to take Will off Jane decides it'd be nice to go with them to see what the past looks like, and they're the companions for the rest of the season. As you're reading the rest of the books, just imagine that as a, a what-if, because mm. there's a story, one from the end, that would make this all very, very interesting if it were those yes. two particular companions. But just on, you know the way I quite often do the, the casting of, uh, what if this were an American show or whatever? Polly James plays Jane, uh, the school teacher, and she is the third cast member to have come from the Liver Birds, which was this massive sitcom in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So you've already read The Faceless Ones, mm-hmm. yeah? Uh, and S- Samantha Briggs was played by Pauline Collins, and she was one of the original stars of The Liver Birds. Pauline Collins, you might remember as uh, Queen Victoria in Tooth and Claw, oh, yeah. recently. And then you had Neris Hughes, who was a guest star in Kinder, and she mm-hmm. was the other big star of the Liver Birds, and Polly James was another one. So if you imagine the Liver Birds was about a flat share or an, an apartment share between two young up-and-coming women and the, the life lessons they learn. And the closest match I can think of is probably something like the Mary Tallon Moore show. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to do a sort of American casting, Polly James is like Valerie Harper. Mm-hmm. She, she was the sort of okay. the kooky one that got into trouble and was less sophisticated than the other one, so... Okay. Funnily enough, by the way, for the audiobook of this, I don't know if you've heard it. No. So the audiobook is read by Neris Hughes. Yes. Not Polly James. So, uh, again, I don't know whether it's that Polly James didn't want to come back, didn't want to recreate the character or whatever, but um, it's funny that they went, who else can we get from the Liver Birds who's done Doctor... Oh, Neris Hughes. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting that they went that route because... TVTropes.org lists the people who were considered for roles, and apparently, among others, Patrick Stewart was considered for a role in this. I think he would have been Ben, which is an interesting casting. Mm. But the other actresses who are considered for Jane include Honor Blackman of The Avengers. She would actually be in Doctor Who the next season. Judy Dench, of all people. Mm. Jean Marsh, who played Sarah Kingdom and would later return also, Helen Mirren, Diana Rigg, speaking of Avengers, Barbara Shelley, who would appear this very season, and Penelope Wilton. Yes, we know who she is. <laughs> it's worth remembering, though. I mean, sometimes they do these lists, and what they're doing is they're saying that we're trying to cast a type. So it's not necessarily that they thought they could get Helen Mirren. But Judy Dench was quite a possibility, because at the time, although she was big in the theatre, for TV viewers, she'd been a jobbing actress for years. 
but she was a sitcom actress at the time uh, in a show mm-hmm. called The Fine Romance. So she didn't become Dame Judi Dench for about another decade. <laughs> so right. so it's, it's slightly less odd than you might think, but I think Polly James does a lovely job anyway. Oh yeah, she does, she does. The story also has the distinction of being the last self-contained two-part story to be transmitted in two 25-minute episodes. All the standalone two-parter episodes from here on out will be at least 45 minutes. And I haven't explained why that is yet, but when we get to the Dalek story for this season, it'll make sense. This doesn't include the last two episodes of the upcoming Trial of the Time Lord season, since that one is technically 14 episodes, even though we'll be looking at those stories individually. So there is a two-parter, there is a book of that two-parter, but it's technically a novelization of episodes 13 and 14, Hmm. which is not the way anyone looks at it. In (laughs) other words, this isn't the last two-parter adapted to the page that we'll be looking at from the classic series, but it's the last two-parter, if that makes sense. That'll be 25 minutes long each episode. That was overly complicated, so let's have a dramatic (laughs) reading of the back cover, shall we? Who wants to do this one? Uh, (laughs) Nobody. I mean, I I can step in if you like. (laughs) Okay. Jim, why don't you do this one for us? Jim always does a fantastic Uh, job with the reading. That long pause gave me time to find the book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just thought, have I forgotten some <gasps> the book? <laughs> so, it works s- out well for all of I've us. I've been scrambling from the PDF. <laughs> Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. The Doctor has promised Tegan that they will visit her grandfather in the English village of Little Hodkin, comma, in the year 1984, comma, a precision of timing and location that the TARDIS has not always achieved. That's quite a long opening sentence and it tells you very little. When the Type 40 machine comes to a rest, the view on the scanner screen only serves to confirm Tegan's rather low expectations of the TARDIS's performance. The most sensible course of action would be to leave immediately. But despite Turlow's protests, the Doctor rushes out to take on a seemingly hopeless rescue mission. Not a single mention of the monster, the civil war, or the actual plot in any way. What a terrible book. (laughs) Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Well, I, I, I think probably whoever did the blurb for this one looked at the plot and said, what can I possibly pull out of this? So, yeah. Well, well, we'll see how this goes. Speaking of which, Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting this book? Well, the cover reminded me of the rock biter from The NeverEnding Story. <laughs> yes. So that was the image I got from that. And then, yeah, reading the back, I'm like, oh, great. Uh, this tells me zero. This mm-hmm. tells me nothing, which in comparison to some of the blurbs we've had before that give away everything this is like the complete opposite end of the spectrum and i'm like can, can you tell me at least something but <laughs> nope so i did not have high expectations uh just from that and after reading it um yeah i have even lower expectations so <laughs> okay not to preview what we're gonna give it but sure mm. yeah allison what was your first impression uh ben grim went on a crash diet and then started vaping (laughs) possibly some sort of mayan deity i actually love that the back is of the sort of work that you see on a 
a streaming service episode a summary where someone has clearly only been paid to watch the first 60 seconds of each episode <laughs> yes. and write a summary from that. So I have no idea what this is going to be about. And I actually, I like that. Okay. Awesome. And Jim, you probably saw this one at first one out, right? I did. And second time out as well, because it was repeated that summer. Uh, yeah. So I saw it going out at the time and I loved it. I've always seen Doctor Who has been a sort of a fusion between science fiction and horror. And that's what we've got here. It's got a lot of horror tropes. And um, mm. especially the kind of uh, the folk horror, which runs through a lot of uh, British um, horror stories, like The Wicker Man and stuff like that. And yeah, I've, and I've always really, really liked the story, even though it is quite slight. Yes, just a little bit. And I think that was my impression of it too. The thing about The Awakening is that I got a lot of Peter Davison's final season piecemeal when I finally got it because I had moved from Virginia to Michigan and none of the Michigan PBS stations were running Doctor Who in 1985 for some God only knows reason. It took them a year, but they finally did. So I was getting videotapes. And for Mm. some reason, the person who recorded those videotapes for me didn't think it necessary to record The Awakening. I'm starting to wonder if that was his comment on the uh, story. (laughs) But that meant for the longest time, I never saw this one. And I didn't end up seeing it until early 90s. And uh, it's slight, as Jim says. It's extremely slight. And speaking of folk horror, I, I appreciate it when Doctor Who tries to mine that particular vein. But this one... It seems like instead of going for really great classic British horror, they went for movies like The Gorgon, which is notoriously unsatisfying. At least it it was for me. But yeah, I'll leave listeners to go seek that one out. (sighs) But we're not talking about the televised story. We're talking about the book to see whether or not the book is satisfying and whether it's any less light at 144 pages. What do we think of this book? What uh, are the things that you like about this book? (laughs) I'll I'll say that Pringle writes well. The story is well written, but there is not a lot going on. And so it just seems like he's writing to write. So this might be one of those backhanded compliments from a few (laughs) stories ago, but he's not writing poorly. It's just that he's just expounding on minute details just for shits and giggles, it seems like. And so (laughs) it's just like, this doesn't need to be as long as it is for as little as is happening. (laughs) So even though I like what he's writing, I'm wishing that there was more going on. Yeah, and I I do have a comment about that, because you can imagine that if it had been somebody like Terrence Dudley, we might have gotten like a history lesson about the English Civil War, Mm -hmm. that they would have taken that as their remit to educate the audience, especially since at this point, it's common knowledge that that audience includes American viewers, and American viewers know fuck all about the English Civil War, or the Roundheads, or anything thereof so it would have been a good opportunity for him to you know do a flashback to when will actually sees the fight coming to little hotcom but we never get that Mm -hmm. instead it's it's minutia everything is described in such minute detail that it's just astonishing 
I love A Creepy Village. Uh, I would not have expected one from the front or the back cover of this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. But I greatly value a sense of atmospheric disorientation, and I love the prologue. Uh, even though it's interesting that uh, later in the story, we find that Jane absolutely knows what's going on with the, the big reenactment pageant. But at the beginning, it starts with all these atmospherics of how it's creepy, it's off, she hears horses everywhere. We don't yet know what's going on. I, for reasons, both thanks to Pringle and for personal connection to the story reasons, sort of fell into a reverie for the entire time I was reading the book that totally worked for me. Oh, so even though the okay. story is slight, it absolutely poked a part of my psyche that had lain long dormant and continued to poke it for the entire 138 pages. So I was actually very surprised it was only a two-part story, as long in detail as it was. But I think the fact that there's not a very detailed historical lesson in there actually works really well with the sort of ur-fascism part of the story. Mm, okay. Uh, that's interesting. Why Why do you say so? Well, I say Ur-Fascism, I'm thinking of, I do not remember the actual proper name of this essay, but Umberto Eco's essay on Ur-Fascism. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the concept of fascism calling back to this glorious past that never really existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though in this case, there is a specific event of the raising of the village during this battle that they are referring to the fact that... The modern reenactors, especially Mad Sir George, are so foaming at the mouth, caught up in the beauty and passion of <laughs> the previous destruction of their town all these centuries prior, I, and not having a very good historical understanding of it, understanding minute details, perhaps, of the actions, but not really having a grasp of, and then our village was raised to the ground, and we set someone on fire, and it was great. Uh, that actually, I thought, <laughs> totally worked with the concept of the malice trying to excite this extreme psychic energy and bloodlust and sort of blind uh, lust for excitement and action. Hmm. Ur-fascism or eternal fascism, 14 ways of looking at a black shirt. That's the name of the essay. The, the part of the psyche it poked me in, so to speak, was in the 80s and 90s living in Middle Tennessee and uh, reenactments of the Battle of Franklin of the American Civil oh. War. Um, mm-hmm. And even though it was not as dangerous <laughs> as this particular <laughs> off-the-rails reenactment they're describing here, what, what sort of uh, create a personal connection here is the different sorts of characters we have engaged in as we have Farmer Ben, who just has a very carefully curated collection of local antiquities in his living room and is just sort of a history buff and interested in all this. And, you know, we're not, what are you talking about? We're not going to do anything bad to the May Queen. We just need a lady to dress up. Uh, Compared to (laughs) Sir George, who's uh, literally going mad with the desire to experience this sort of previous era where he thinks of his ancestors having been more alive than perhaps he's allowed to be in the present century. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really interesting contrast. And the sort of, both the fun of reenactment and then the extreme darkness of what's usually being reenacted. Hmm. Interesting. Which is hard to grasp once all the people who were involved when the original events would have already been dead anyway. Yes. So in Battle of Franklin, haha, 2,200 people died in about four hours. Well, they'd already been dead by now anyway. That was 1864. So 
<laughs> you know. Uh, but I'm thinking of that particular reenactment uh, that happened, I think the 125th anniversary, maybe around like 89, I guess, that a big part of those reenactments was camp life. Mm, and like, mm-hmm. you know, tents mm-hmm. with no modern implements and roasting an entire hog. Yes. And also a lot of people who were super excited about the Confederacy and a race-based caste system and women not being able to vote at that time. And there's a really interesting queasy mix of relatively wholesome historic interest and some very dark historic interest as well that I thought this evoked nicely. Yeah, there's a fascinating book called Confederates in the Attic, which is an exploration of reenactors of Civil War battles. And it follows a couple of them around and actually interviews one of them. And you see that kind of excitement for going back to those times, which are described as simpler, (laughs) as in not so complex that we allow women to vote or that we give other races the same rights and all of that. And how in some ways it's barely concealed racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. And yet there are other people who really are just interested in the technology, the strategy, these sort of less socially fraught, if you will, aspects, who suddenly realize who else they're surrounded by. And I thought that's what made Ben an especially interesting character. Yeah, I agree. And you could actually see Hutchinson as a stand-in for someone who wants to do some sort of make Britain great again movement because he's more than willing to bend the rules since he makes the rules in his own favor and is completely fine with people being in danger for their lives just to have this reenactment happen. And you get the impression that even if the malice hadn't been there, he'd be that way anyway. It's got that feel to it. What else? We have a cracking thing with, although they don't really do a lot of the, uh, the missing scenes in this, there is one kind of flashback where Will sees how things are panning out in, in this time and remembers the things that happened in his time. So there's also a Squire Hutchinson back in his time. Mm-hmm. And that's a hark back to kind of the aristocracy or the, you know, the, the lower aristocracy thinking, oh, well, we won the wars. You know, they often say, oh, mm-hmm. oh my great-great-grandfather built this house in 1758 or whatever. It's like, he didn't. He paid for it, but working men <laughs> built the house. <laughs> People who got their hands dirty and bloody built your house, you know. I want all the credit for everything my ancestors ever accomplished and none of the blame for any of their war crimes. Exactly right. right. So, you know, you, you know full well that Squire Hutchinson, when he won that battle, was up on a hill watching it happen as if it was a spectator sport. He, he didn't win it. He didn't get his hands dirty. So, you know, you, you've often got this very kind of um, socialist history view going through Doctor Who, a lot of the writers are, are trying to shoehorn that in. And the, the fact that we've got a critique of this person who is glorifying the war and the battle and forgetting the bloodshed and the loss and the fact that the entire civilization surrounding the original squire would have been wiped out for the, mm-hmm. for the glory of a man who dragged Britain into absolute misery for 13 years. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, Jim, you're more of an expert than I am in these things. Going back to that comment that you made about folk horror movies, isn't it something of a trope in some of those movies where you start the movie in the past with some terrible, horrible thing happening that is going to echo down the ages to the present day? And when you get to the present day, 
some of the same actors are playing those parts and it's happening to them. I mean, that, that's, that's just how you make horror. Uh, that's yeah. specifically, <laughs> specifically hammer horror, you know, where everything's done on the cheap or the amicus versions of it or the Tygon ones. You'll have the actors playing the same role because you want them to, you want to, be, like, it's usually the mummy, isn't it? You know, there'll be an, act, yeah. an actor and an actress who are playing the parts in ancient Egypt and then they play them again and this time so that you can save a bit of money. <laughs> but you've mm-hmm. also got that automatic connection of, oh, oh, that's that guy from the first scene. I mean, this feels very like, um, I mentioned the Wicker Man, it's Blood on Satan's Claw, The Witchfinder General especially, those very early 70s horror movies that um, have a particular sadism to them. With the tranquility of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. Take him, Stern. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Right. Help us, you two. Pounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Witchfinder General. You've got to remember that Eric Pringle had been writing for years. He actually submitted his first um, scripts to Doctor Who in about 1975 or 6, when Robert Holmes was in charge. And he got a couple of episodes in before they went, actually, we don't want to pursue this anymore. I don't know what those episodes were about, but the fact that he came back because because he was a fan so this is a fan writing a story and uh, you often that can work out quite well but sometimes it doesn't but it, i think he's also a fan of this particular period of history and he's also a fan of horror in general mm-hmm. this story might have worked better during the hinchcliffe holmes years for the fourth doctor because it certainly would have fit that level of horror that they were doing in fact, in some ways, I would have preferred to get the story then instead of the Android Invasion, which didn't fit I mean, necessarily. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fight you on that one. But, uh, <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> I, I love the Android Invasion. It's so sunny. But if this had been a Philip Hinchcliffe story, we would have had a lot more detail of what the Harkle probe was, what the malice was. But we wouldn't have had Jane. That's true. Because they didn't do women in those days. It's uh, basically you've got the the female the single female companion who would be Tegan, you know, uh, the equivalent mm-hmm. of Tegan, or it'd be Sarah Jane, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. You wouldn't have Jane. Ben would be the expert teacher who'd have to sacrifice himself mm. at the end to finish things off before they they blow up the house and and the and the church and everything. I mean, it, it, it ends with a big explosion, just like the seventies, doesn't it? So, yes, yes, it does. Yeah, in some ways, it's got a lot of parallels to the demons, except it's not as long, and it's mm-hmm. not as packed with plot. <laughs> so that's the issue, I think. I mean, maybe it would have worked if JNT had done his usual thing of. Um, unfortunately, they had. Oh, I'm, I'm, I've got to be careful with spoilers, but they didn't put the master in this story. And maybe, no. maybe if it had been the master going, I've got this thing in the church, and and if they'd, <laughs> if they'd really gone into the whole demons thing, because Doctor Who sometimes uh, skirts over the horror elements, and then turns out it's it's science fiction as ever. But if they'd if they'd have had somebody who's maybe uh, a white witch or somebody who uh-huh. can predict it, Will kind of fulfills that by being a time traveller, saying, "Oh, this has happened in my time as well." But uh, yeah, if the master had been at the heart of this, it, it might have lasted four episodes, and it might have made a bit more sense. And again, I'm saying this as somebody who loves the story. I really do like the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, history doesn't repeat; it rhymes. Mm. It certainly would have had that feeling of this isn't us doing the demons again. But we are kind of doing the demons again, and it could have sustained four episodes. But yeah, the fact is, every single review mentions the demons. 
Every yeah. single review of this mentions the demons because it's in a village and it's got a church and it's got some sort of thing in the crypt. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, it's not yeah. it's not that similar. It's not like the malice has necessarily been there for centuries. It's only been there for since the Civil War rather than influencing the whole evolution of humanity. But there's not that much similarity, just location. Right. I'm going back to beating my drum about an imagined glorious past that's either fabricated or very recent. Um, I was surprised that, well, I, uh, well, I was actually surprised that Jane and Will didn't uh, turn out to be new companions. Uh, but I was surprised when Will actually affirmed that they had, in fact, burned a May Queen in 1643, which seems extremely recent for an entire village to participate in a pre-Christian human sacrifice. And I was wondering if the implication was, I'm not sure if I got the story right here, was that the malice had sort of instigated something that would have been very anachronistic in that time as well as part of this sort of excitement of greater psychic energy where they have the troops with a bloodlust for one another in the village and the villagers with a bloodlust for this sacrifice. Uh, maybe I'm seeing something that's not there. Now, they didn't just have a maypole. They have a human sacrifice in 1643. Yeah, and I wish I could answer that, except that's where the plot kind of falls apart for me a bit. Because mm-hmm. I can't really figure out exactly what it is that the fucking malice does in the story. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out what it was doing in 1643 versus 1984. Was it doing all of these things then as well? I got. A, I was a little unclear on how it first came in 1643. Like how it first was able to manifest. Was it just the violence and the destruction of the village and the sacrifice together? Did it create those things? Did it just take advantage of what was already happening? It, there's a spaceship crash. I, I didn't entirely understand that. That could just be me. It is a bit confused as the story goes on. I mean, at the, the very end, the Doctor says, I don't know, you know <laughs> which is quite yeah. brave. You know, to, for, the, for the Doctor to say, I don't know, is quite rare. But the fact that as the story goes on, with very little evidence, he starts piecing together what must have happened. Like he finds some squishy metal and suddenly decides, oh, this has got a link to um, the Terraleptals from Eric Sayward's first story. And uh, it's something to do with a Harkle probe. And none of this is actually revealed to him. It's just he works it out. Mm-hmm. But I love that thing of at the end going, oh, I don't know. If this were a modern episode, it would be technology broken. It would be another one of those stories where the go faster switch had been stuck down in the crash and, and it went a bit mental and the doctor just resets yes. it and, and suddenly everybody lives apart from that guy who's going to get his head cut off later on. Yes. And mm. I would have liked that better. Especially when you consider that the Tin Clavic and the Hockle Probe and all of that, that's Eric Sayward. That is almost definitely Eric Sayward's additions because he specifically wanted to keep in the viewers' minds the Terraleptals because he kept wanting to bring them back. Never got to do it. If only he was in a job where he could actually make that happen. I mean... <laughs> if, if only he was in a job where he decided which stories they tell. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. how shitty was at his job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's never going to make Fetch happen. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. No matter how exactly. pink you paint it. Yeah. <sighs> and yet he's going to mention either Tin Clavic or the Terraleptals or any of those things in almost every book that he writes. Even now. When we well, we'll see this in a, in a few weeks when we get to resurrection of the Daleks because if memory serves, there are mentions of it there. And it's like, oh God, okay, fetch, fetch, fetch. We get it, we get it, we get it. <laughs> yeah, 
Christ yeah. Almighty. But yeah, that is the part of the story that it would have been great if they'd gone just for one or the other. If it had been technology broken, or if it had been just this hideous, horrifying force from legend that manifests because there's this huge burst of horrific psychic energy. I don't know why it would be there, but there it is. But it doesn't. It tries to marry those two, and it tries to marry those two in a story that runs just over 50 minutes. Yeah, even the new series would have difficulty unpacking that in 50 minutes, I think. Just on the the horror thing as well, J&T actually got a warning from his immediate manager, the head of series, David Reed, um, who'd cast his eye over the script and he sent a memo saying, I urge you to be careful with this story. Many of the images are pure horror movie and you run a great risk of making this too frightening for your transmission time. (laughs) Now, having worked in the BBC for over 20 years, I'll tell you that you'll often get a manager who will insert themselves into a situation to tell you the job you already know you're doing. So I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily JNT or even Eric Saywood, who often had lapses in judgment, but it's not that they're necessarily getting it wrong. It's just that they're using certain things that a manager would automatically be looking out for. Because right. if you mention, I think you might have mentioned this before, but if you mention witchcraft in a script, yeah. oh. the, there are going to be alarms going off because they get letters. Yes. One of the things about this story that, that is interesting is it's another rural story where this sort of thing happens. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't like strangers around these ear parts. This, they, <laughs> that is the trope, you know, because they get letters from people in rural communities who believe that witches are real, believe that the civil war is still being fought and, and so on. So they have to be very careful. Speaking of two-parters in witchcraft, and I don't know if I'm misremembering this, wasn't it true that during the production of Canine and Company, someone sent a note to somebody saying, be careful of this because you may not know this, but there are practicing witches in the BBC, and they may get offended with the way that this is depicted. I, I, I may be misremembering that, but I remember there being a similar note being sent about Canine and Company. Yeah, that is exactly the thing I was referring back to, but it's, it's by no means the only one. Oh, it's by no means wow. the only one. So basically, this story is hot fuzz, but without the humor, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and also, it's, it's, as I say, the Wicker Man, which actually is, is hot fuzz. So, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. hot fuzz. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Hmm. What else did we like or dislike about the book or the story? Is the doctor is this much of a dick in the episode? Uh, no more so than he usually is. Because the fifth doctor can indeed be a dick, but what specifical, what specifical, <laughs> what what specific example of dickery were you referring to, Allison? Just a little bit more dismissive, even than usual, about people screaming in fear for their lives. <laughs> oh yeah, his joke about her being the toast of little hotcom. <laughs> e- except I will give Pringle props for this. That line comes off as kind of undoctorish on screen but in the actual text Pringles immediately follows that with the doctor joked trying to reduce the horror and come to terms with it. Will couldn't do that and we get this flashback to Will remembering it and he says it ain't funny she was screaming I can't Mm -hmm. do the accent as well as Jim does and the doctor says that's nothing to what Tegan would have done and 
it seems like it's out of character and Pringle is almost kind of putting a lampshade on that and saying, yeah, it's out of character because the doctor is well aware of how horrific that is. And he's trying to reduce the horror and it just isn't working. I thought it was maybe a critique of the episode. <sighs> you mean of the episode the way it yeah, was produced? Yeah, that was Pringle critiquing the script. Hmm. I have a feeling that was Pringle's line. Even though that sounds like something Sayward would have put in, too, because Sayward, ugh, Sayward's just bloodthirsty. That's all there is to it. So I'm not really sure. Were there any other bits of dickery that you noticed? Because I, I seem to recall them in my notes somewhere. Uh, just things like, you know, Tegan's very excited to see her grandfather not dead. All right, hush, we'll have time for that later. Just uh, almost first Doctor levels of brusqueness that I thought Pringle was pointing out in a way that was a criticism of the script, but uh, I might be seeing things that are not there. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the book would be the place where those things would be, if ever they were there to begin with. Because you do have authors quite often, as we've said before, we, you do have authors quite often doing their novelizations of their own stories and tweaking them or bringing something out that wasn't in the televised version. But... Uh, Jim and I are the only ones who've seen the televised version. Uh, Jim, you may have seen something that I didn't. I really didn't see anything on the page that wasn't necessarily in... It's, apart from the descriptions, it is really just the Will's um, memories. Yeah. I just had to check because my favourite line in the TV show, I just had to make sure it was in the book again. Uh, and it's it, it's not quite the, the bitchy doctor that Dalton loves so much, but it's... <laughs> it is just the fact that he's got an answer for everything. And whereas in mm -hmm. uh, Snake Dance, when when you looked at Snake Dance, you've got him on the back foot and everyone is ahead of him and he, and he can't convince anyone that he's, he has any power at all or any knowledge at all. In this, when um, Sir George says, you speak treason, and he says, fluently. Fluently. Stop the game. <laughs> and even though it doesn't, yes. it doesn't stop him, that's his way of checking, oh, you're mad. <laughs> You're absolutely crazy. Uh, I'm being very rational, but the people around me, the ones who aren't possessed, and I'm hoping they're possessed, it's, it's helpful for them to hear this is common sense and, and for Ben to hear common sense. Because when he hears the doctor speaking and he goes, oh, I think, I think you're right. I think, I think Sir George is balmy. There needed to be more of that. Because on the page, we don't really get enough in Ben's head, I think. Or any of the mm -hmm. ones who were, you know, semi-possessed. Uh, in fact, I would have enjoyed our going to Willow's head a little bit more because he just comes off as a nasty guy. And when he gets forgiven at the end, it feels very unearned, especially after 50 minutes. Yeah. The scenes with him and Tegan were just... Ugh. Oh, like, yeah. Creep. When he's, like, talking about wanting to put the dress on her, if yes. she doesn't put it on, it was just, ew, queasy. It's borderline essay. Yeah, yeah. It's got that feel to it. I thought that was actually a great switch, where in that passage, Pringle himself seems like he's being creepy at first, saying, oh, she looked like a beautiful young woman of the 17th century instead of wearing that horrible, loose, modern dress. And then later on, uh, after we know what the fate of the May Queen is supposed to be, there's a, a passage where she's very relieved to be wearing her own clothes again. It's like he was almost, at that point, taking that idealized view of... 
well, this doesn't the young woman look so much like uh, more lovely this way in this uh, anachronistic costume? And then clues the audience in on the horror that was actually associated with that particular costume. I thought that was a nice switch. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if this is a matter of budget or what, but there are these great descriptions about the crackling energy and static electricity sort of sweeping through the village as part of this big reenactment and an idea of all these people getting really carried away with it and everyone but Jane is in this sort of mania. Yeah. But then we see almost nothing of the other villagers. Yeah. The same Mm -mm. half dozen over and over and over again. I wonder if that was just a matter of who they could afford to hire. Yeah, probably. I mean, this story really could have borne with a lot of walking through deserted streets and having villagers peeking out of their curtains and then closing them shut when we look. That's that particular trope. And it it doesn't have it. It doesn't. It feels like the only villagers we get are the reenactors. Yeah. And I cannot even remember if they're in that scene where it's revealed that it's not Tegan that's in the cart. It's the dummy. But but Jane is criticized for being the only person in the village who's not participating at one point. But I thought it was interesting that we have a civil war enactment and we have troops from both sides and they have zero interest in going at one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not what we'd expect. It's not turning the village reenactors against one another as they get more into portraying the two sides. Yeah. We're told that there are people guarding the borders of the village, Mm -hmm. but yeah, we don't ever see them. Yeah. And then during the, the, I guess the May Queen scene, we are told that there are villagers there kind of awaiting that. And they are sort of frothy. Yeah. But there's no in between. Yeah. And I can't remember if we see those villagers in the televised version. Do we, Jim? We see stand, people standing by. We do. But I was just thinking, actually, we don't see that many cavaliers, do we? No. We just see... No, we don't. Sir George. <laughs> yeah. I mean, two or three others are described in the story, but not... You don't have any scene of, like, clashing armies or even... Mm-mm. Like, it, no. His, tearing through the village, destroying. His number two, who I think is... Um, Willow is supposed to be his like his land manager or something like that on the farms. Yeah. And, and Ben's a local farmer as well. And but man, the way that Jane reacts is Ben has only just joined in. Like, mm-hmm. today, he's yeah. just joined in. Yeah. But Sir George seems to be surrounded by roundheads. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I was wrong. Maybe he's not up on a hill. Maybe he's in the middle of a field going, I'll take you all on one by one. He's <laughs> <laughs> been at the sherry and just and they just go, oh, look at him. <laughs> Let's just surround him with our pikes and let him tire himself out like an, like an yeah. overexcited child. And again, he wouldn't need the malice for that, would he? <laughs> but it's interesting that the reenactors playing roundheads and the reenactors playing cavalier all just kind of hanging out together you know, polishing their equipment. And their hostility is focused entirely towards maintaining that perimeter and keeping outsiders out Mm -hmm. in such a way that I thought was being set up was that maybe the villagers were going to go into this sort of ecstasy of destruction where they destroyed their own village. They were so excited about reenacting it that it was just more the... The bloodlust and excitement of conflict as a concept more than reenacting the specific conflict that was exciting to them, and then we didn't go there. That's also a much more expensive scene. Yeah, but Pringle should have at least been able to go into that in the book. 
on the page, and it's kind of missing there, too. No, I think he was maybe pulling out something that maybe even wasn't intentionally there, that it's not even this conflict they're into, it's just conflict as a concept. Like, they're actually terrible history buffs. They're not (laughs) interested (laughs) in the specifics of this battle other than the village is destroyed. They're not interested in the politics of it. They're not interested in anything other than fight, fight, fight. Yeah. Was what I got out of it. That's true. I mean, it is theme park history, isn't it? It's uh, it really is. And right, mm-hmm. maybe that's the whole point of it. It's like we had the 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 culmination of the entire event is the crowning of the May. Everyone cheers. It's all over. So when it turned into a horrific murder, that would be the catalyst for the malice to take hold. And it doesn't matter what side yeah. you're on. You're all under the control of the malice. Ben is the only one who's interested in particulars, who has a sort of museum in his parlor. Right. No one else is like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a really drafty priest hole that leads all the way to the church. <laughs> yeah. Yes, for no apparent reason. Well, it's hot outside. Well, I mean, no, I mean, the length of that tunnel. That's I mean, just sure. handy, is what I'm saying. Yes, but it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that, yes, is a trope for this sort of thing, but it's like... Uh, when you step back from it and look at it and try to think of the practical use of it, you're thinking, why is this here? I I recently rewatched Hair of the Zygons and I had the same reaction to the Duke of Forgill having that tunnel down to the Zygon ship behind the bookcase. It's like, why is mm. that there? Why has it always been there? You have yeah. to have running people through a tunnel. Or people running through a tunnel. But how did they pay off the architect to allow that tunnel to be... Uh, yeah. I'm thinking too I think, much about I think it. you're looking for an answer other than they threatened to murder him. That's, that's the usual historical thing, isn't it? You know, I own all <laughs> this true. land. I'm the, I'm the local magistrate. I'll be very forgiving to myself. And uh, by the way, if you don't do this for me, I'll kill you. Or your children. That's or true. your family. Or, yeah. or your dog. Or your sheep. <laughs> because I, oh, yeah, because I'm the aristocracy and I'm an utter shit. That's what it is. <laughs> yes. But I have a glorious past. The OCR did say something about use. His use mm-hmm. dilated with mock <laughs> surprise. The OCR said a lot of wild things. Oh, oh God, yeah. The <laughs> malice the became Mattis. Yeah. It became Mattis and Matt's and Matt painting. And it's just My favorite terrible. one is the sight of the gigantic males taking over the church and springing to life in his beloved village overwhelmed him. How big were these males? Well, How many? Well, that malice face is pretty big, and it is male, mm-hmm. ostensibly. Also, it's the manes that are bellowing like an elephant. They they did say it was a hot summer, so maybe the grid was taxed by all the air conditioning. This know. is the UK. We don't have air conditioning. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true, because we, we generally don't need it. We don't have air conditioning. We open a window. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then go, oh, it's hot. Oh, it's hot. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I wasn't sure if the contrast here was once again with the fake glorious past that they're reenacting in May, this spring fertility celebration, but it's clearly like late summer and the hottest time of the year, or if the heat was just entirely the energy of the malice. Hmm. Is it just the energy? <sighs> I don't know. I don't. Or are they... <laughs> doing totally the wrong human sacrifice. <laughs> like, 
No, yeah. you're the August or September sacrifice. You're doing the one in May. <laughs> <laughs> well, May Day is in June, as mm-hmm. Shada tells us. Yeah. But still. But only, uh, yeah. only in Cambridge, where they do it deliberately. Only in Cambridge. Only in Cambridge, just <laughs> okay. to annoy you. You know, in Cambridge, where they got fags, which we talked about last time. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. The malice itself comes across a bit better on the page, I think, than on TV. I actually like the giant face. I think that's one of the more interesting effects that they've done, even though it's not really an effect. It's more like just a piece of set dressing that is animated, and it's kind of scary. It's the face from the cover, obviously. The mini malice... Not so much. <laughs> and I think the mini malice actually works better on the page two because you get the sense that this thing is hanging in the corner of the TARDIS looking at you. And at any point, it's going to spring and do something awful, something worse than death. And that comes across on the page very well. Whereas on screen, it's this little puppet hanging in the corner and then puking green stuff on the floor. <laughs> It does make you think, though, because the malice is just a face, isn't it? It's like, um, you know, malice goes into a bar and the barman says, why the long face? Um, <laughs> but you had that is, in the chamber for a while, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, um, the time we're recording this, yesterday it was exactly 40 years since the last episode of this was broadcast. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. So we're in the anniversary weekend, should we say. But is the malice just... A head that's an embodiment of evil behind the wall, or is there a neck and a pair of shoulders and arms and legs and a massive tail under Ooh. the ground of Little Hookham? Maybe the tail burrowed the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. So that's something that we don't really get a sense of, because if that malice it is a physical presence and then it disappears, doesn't the village just collapse into a sinkhole? And you know, I'm not saying. I'm for once. I'm not. No, ma- I'm not mining this for comedy. That would have been a much more terrifying thing. And bear in mind, I think there were complaints to the BBC for blowing up a church just for the sake of Doctor Who. Again, um, and I sh- yeah. and I should point out, people's TVs were a lot smaller than <laughs> they were. Like most people's TVs were only like twenty inches, you know, from diagonal. So. Yeah. It would be a lot more convincing on a small screen. But even so, they had complaints about a church. Imagine if they destroyed an entire village. How wonderful that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have needed the budget. They also would have needed the time. And with the two-parter, they wouldn't have had it. And if the uh, impression in the ground was malice-shaped, <laughs> so you just see yes. the edges of the village where the malice disappeared from, that would be... That would, this is why my imagination should be uh, medicated. Really, <laughs> I'm away. thinking that it's a shame that they couldn't have gone with a three-parter instead of a four. I know, I know that just wasn't an option at this point in Doctor Who's history. It would be later. But this could have just about borne three parts. Except, remember... We're not actually looking at Doctor Who as episodic in this point. Doctor Who is no. two episodes a week on consecutive yeah. nights, or you know, um, I think it was Thursday and Friday because I seem to remember this was a Friday. The episode two would be on a Friday. I believe it was. So yeah, it's, it, you wouldn't work because you, then you'd have an odd episode. Yeah, that's true. Which that's when true. it was then later broadcast one episode a week in the middle of the week, that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. True. Do we think that Will Chandler would have been a good companion? 
I think he would have been interesting as a companion. I think that having his perspective would have been refreshing. I think the fact that even in here, we get that line about him coming to terms with things being extraordinary and kind of beyond his understanding and him just going with it. Uh, I think that would have been fun to see played out on screen. I think it would have been great to see more instances of things that he didn't understand and his opinion about them, like him not knowing what tea is and him yeah. saying that it sounds like an evil brew. Yes. <laughs> but he knows what ale is. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Good man. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there could have been opportunity there. And for all intents and purposes, he is a companion for this story. So. Yeah. That's true. I thought he and Jane were going to be at least briefly, at least maybe for a story, uh, companions until Will just straight up killed a guy out of revenge, which is not a usual thing to have a companion do. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But then he gets a pat on the back. But then I was surprised he survived the story. I thought he was going to be killed for that in the collapsing church. So two surprises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or fallen into the malice when he pushed. Yeah. Right, but that would have sent him back to his own time, or that would have been a sacrifice, or whatever. It's worth thinking about, like, if this had been, like, a, a modern-style Christmas special, Keith Jane would be the Kylie Minogue of the episode, because for kids of the time, he was the biggest star they had this year. Oh, that's right. Because, uh, like, if, if you're an adult, you might recognise different actors in each of the stories that you're going to be seeing in this season, but if you're a kid... You've seen him star in um, the adaptation of Stig of the Dump, the uh, story about the time-travelling caveman, uh-huh. which had been on ITV um, only like four years before this. And he was also the star of um, uh, uh, Murphy's Mob, which is about a, a gang of uh, football fans, young football fans. Huh. So for us, we'd seen him on TV loads of times, and he was like a really familiar face. So he was probably, the for us, the biggest star that the, the show had done in years because we knew him off kids' TV. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That might have been part of the reason why he was being considered as a companion even briefly. He would have been a, a coup, yeah. Yeah, he really would have been. But instead, John Nathan Turner says, oh, we can't develop this companion out. It's like, you had Adric. You could yeah. have done this. There are more possibilities for development with this character, especially since we've had companions that are out of their own time before. We've had Jamie. That worked out really well. I mean, I think the quote they said was that uh, they felt that Will didn't have enough unique features. Now, bearing in mind that they were already planning on replacing Tegan and Turlow, and they knew who the next companion was going to be by this point. So, and, And that particular companion has two very prominent unique features. (laughs) Um, you are of course talking about her nationality and her accent right no i was talking about her tits sorry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because jnt is always thinking about what's there to appeal to the young adolescent boy yeah but some of us adolescent boys would have enjoyed keith james maybe the whole the whole thing about a companion being out of time though we're talking about a show that's about fucking time travel <laughs> every yes. companion is out of their time like yeah that's what yeah. at least he's from a period that... in history that understands doors which yes. is why you know when they had katarina back in dalek's master plan they, they realized that oh, this isn't going to work because she doesn't even understand the concept of windows and doors but uh, okay. at least he, he would understand that's a handle turn it you get through the door yeah. <laughs> While we're being sophomoric, I'd like to read something out of context. Okay. 
Something was coming, and coming fast. The doctor was much too close, right in front of the hole. <laughs> Is this when I say frozen? Yes. <laughs> There's exactly. some ellipses in there. Yeah, we're running out of places to run. That's becoming the story of our lives. Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that, that's what this podcast has become, too. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, anything else you want to say about the book, the story, etc., etc.? Whenever, who is it, Willow and one of the other nameless characters, I guess, when they're trying to break down the door of the TARDIS, why are we supposed to think that's actually going to happen? (laughs) (laughs) They bruised their shoulders, Dalton. They really put a lot into it. Well, they bruised their shoulders breaking down the Turlo did, but the TARDIS is nigh indestructible. Like, We're supposed to believe that that two people with a battering ram are going to break down the door? What? Yeah, They worked very hard. (laughs) Maybe it's because it's it's a polystyrene rock. Which is why, which is why we're not we're not too upset when Tello picks up a rock to actually brain them. Oh my god! The the, the real, you know, we've got to suspend um, disbelief here because what they do to those guys to try and stop them trying to break into the TARDIS is physically assault them mm. to the point where they'd have life-changing injuries. Yeah. Yes. I was yes. unclear if they were dead because I was just kind of this bizarre bonding moment between Turlo and Granddad. Let's bash some brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's back under the Black Guardian's influence. And bear in mind, the, the story begins with them seeing somebody on a, a small screen and going, oh, he might be killed if a brick falls on him and they run out and chase him. <laughs> And he turns out to be the, yeah. the plague victim. And then they'd go, oh, well, that's an idea. Why don't we just brain them with a brick? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so shall we go to Goodreads? <laughs> I think uh, we're done here. I was just going to yeah. ask. Oh, I just remembered. The doctor congratulates Turlo for knocking those guys out. Because when he comes out of the TARDIS, he says, well done. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> I'm just thinking about um, dickish doctor moment. Remember when Tegan first joined the TARDIS and she had a, a her uh, uniform and she had a handbag, didn't she? Yes. And then we never see her have a handbag again until it's necessary for the plot. Until it's necessary. Until this story. Yeah. And then the whole point of uh, the Doctor sees the plague victim holding Tegan's handbag, which makes him go back to the church and chase him. Imagine trying to remember where in time and space and what, what planet you left your bag. So that's, And she never gets it back, That's right? my big mystery, yeah. What so. happens to her bag? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing she's, the only reason she's taking the bag is, oh, I've got some photos to show my, my granddad. Mm-hmm. They're gone. Yeah. I hope her ID and passport are in there because she's going to need those later, but... Oh, well. So, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have the chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.38. The reviews quoted here have been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 3 stars and says, I really enjoyed this story when it was first broadcast, partly because it incorporated, albeit as a false narrative, one of the BBC's renowned strengths, period drama. This is, of course, lost on the page, but is not as big a problem as I thought it would be. A much bigger problem is Ben Wolsey. 
On screen, Glenn Houston imbues the character with as an amiable charm which is absent on the page. I noticed that too. This actually improves one of his lines near the end of the story where he reassures Joseph Willow, an utter sadist, that there would be no recriminations. I thought that out of character when I first watched it, but the book has fixed that. Wolsey is just as callous and culpable as Willow. I'm not sure I'd go that far. Which makes me wonder why Jane Hampton is so fond of him. One minor special effect problem has gone. The malice itself is very good, though the scriptwriter's vision of it emerging from the fabric of the wall, rather than being hidden behind it, would be better realized with today's computer graphics. There are occasional spooky manifestations portrayed by very blocky pixels on top of the picture. I think computers were used to achieve, in quotes, this fact, CGI <laughs> being not so much in its infancy as prenatal. It wasn't too much of a chore reading this book, but it doesn't add enough for me to read it again soon. Gordon McGee also gives it three stars and says, dipped into this classic Fifth Doctor story and listened to the audiobook. Although I watched this on the original broadcast back in the 1980s, I had no recollection of the story, so it was interesting to see if any of it came back to me as I listened. Nope. As fun as it was to have a Roundheads versus Cavaliers story, but it wasn't really that, I did not recall a single thing about this tale. And having listened, I can see why. Lots of running around, but not a lot of content. Not my favorite. And finally, a user named Jamie gives it five stars and says, Marvelous book. The Fifth Doctor is always a favorite of mine. Five stars. <laughs> yeah. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this one? <laughs> I just... Marvelous book. Um mm-hmm. I'll give this 2.5 just because, as I said earlier, Pringle's writing is not the downfall of this. The story itself is not long enough for us to have a book of this length. It needed to be edited. As I've said plenty of times in the past when we have these two-parters that just get blown out of proportion, there's not really anything added to this one to warrant it being as long as it is. The writing... Nothing bad there. Uh, the atmosphere is great. The descriptions are great. The character moments, you know, getting inside of some of the characters' heads, I enjoyed. But just there's not really enough here, kind of like my comments now, to, to warrant it being as long as it is. So 2.5. <laughs> okay. And Allison? I'm going to give it three stars based on pure vibes and atmosphere. Oh. oh. Refuse to follow up or support with evidence. <laughs> Told you. <laughs> it's vibes and atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing else. Okay. All right. That works. And Jim? As I said last time, this is my favorite of the non Sylvester McCoy 80s series. And I think it's a good solid three. Okay. And as for me, I'm going to go low, as I normally do and give this... Actually, I'm going to give it a 2.5. I I agree with Dalton. The writing itself is fine. And the writing itself sometimes is quite good. In fact, Mm -hmm. in my notes, I've got plenty of quotes where Pringle really just knocks it out of the park with the prose. But it's still the story, which has never been a favorite of mine. 
and I really do agree with Pringle on this, I think the fault there lies with Eric Sayward and not with Pringle's actual concept. I think if he had been allowed to expand it on the page, it could have been better. I think if the bits that Sayward added had been taken out, such as the goddamn Tin Clavic, that probably would have made this better and would have made it less muddy than it is. But yeah, it's, it's fine. It represents the story as we see it on screen. It's fine. And fine would be 2.5. Okay. So, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we will cover Frontios, and our special guest that time will be J.J. McQuarrie. Speaking of special guests, Jim, where can we find the other things that we can listen to you in? <laughs> Apart from this one. So I'm still working with the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. We've just, this morning, released the first part of our deep dive into the gunfighters. So by the time this comes out, part two will be available. And that is a musical extravaganza. <laughs> I've gone a bit crazy. And, and oh I've written three new verses. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I'll put this to you, Jim, that The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon is no longer the most annoying song in Doctor Who. <laughs> now that Shooting Gatwa's first story has gone out, we have a new one. Yes, you can fight me as much as you want, but if I get that earworm in my head one more time, I'm going to run screaming into the night. So... <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Instagram. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at DWTargetBC at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.